0: Distro Hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee.
1: I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida.
0: Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros,
2: new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity.
1: The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't.
2: I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. Well, I tend
1: to
0: prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user. Especially one who is hoping to move over from another
1: operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating.
0: Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest, episode 45, recorded on August 9th, 2023. For this episode, we will be reviewing Peppermint OS, Blend OS version 3, and Pop OS 22.04. <music> Monthly foibles were we discuss what we did this month. I've been fiddling with a new scooter, something they're always out of when you go to Voldemort, so I bought my own. I also got a new smart guitar, an Enya Music NEXG, and I'm getting to know it. I got a great price on it, about four hundred and twenty-six dollars. The list is eight ninety-nine ninety nine. I think the reason I got that price is the fact that they've just released their second generation model, which is now going for eight ninety-nine ninety nine. It's hundred bucks less than that on Amazon. But the new model also comes with a few more features and a charging stand. So anyhow, blah blah. I bought a powered digital TV antenna. So far I can only get three stations. One's a Christian station, one's a Christian station in Spanish. And then I have Lifetime Network. I've moved the antenna around, same thing. I don't have a long enough antenna cable, and even if I did, it's a powered antenna, and I'd run out of power cord.
1: I've often wondered how one of those works. So are you far out enough from a populated area that you think you'd only get, or did you expect to get more, I guess?
0: (laughs) I expected to get a lot more because the Channel 4 antenna is only a couple miles from me, and it's the tallest structure in eastern Tennessee. Oh. That's very odd. And I'm not getting Channel 4, so... Hmm. Anyhow, I had a lot of paperwork to get tuned in for various programs, and I managed to get it all done, although I didn't get one of them done soon enough. I'm still waiting to hear back. I have to have a phone appointment based on what I've turned in, and they haven't apparently found it yet. I'm calling every couple of days to see if they find it. Anything going on with you,
2: Dale? I spent a good part of the day working on some clutter remaining from when I moved here a year ago. Some of my stuff found new homes at the neighbors and at Goodwill. I used my motivation to continue working on the contents of the uh, three closets in the uh, next morning. Disappointingly, that only lasted 90 minutes with a little to show for the effort. I then sat on the couch watching TV for the remainder of the day and felt better about my failed attempt. I didn't do much with my computers other than record episode 44. The friend I helped remotely last month was given a new-to-her laptop. Surprisingly, she installed Partis Linux on it. She enjoyed using it and asked if I could set up Redshift on it because I did that on her desktop. She had some issues with TeamViewer and suggested we use AnyDesk. Uh, Another friend of hers used AnyDesk with her once before. I haven't used AnyDesk, so I agreed since I wanted to try it. It was so much better than TeamViewer. The way AnyDesk would capture the mouse and keyboard was almost too seamless. There were many times where I tried using my laptop and I was still controlling hers which was kind of disconcerting. (laughs) It's like, why is my super key not working? Oh, I'm really grateful for companies that allow free personal use licenses for their software, even if it isn't completely FOSS software. My Rode Pod microphone, for some reason, stopped working the day before we recorded episode 44. I took it to Guitar Center for them to look at it. I bought it there three years ago. They determined that the element failed. It was not available for sale in the store anymore and was only available on their website. I looked at what they had in the store because I didn't have time to order anything. They had some used Sure SM7B microphones that were 25% off. They looked brand new and were still in the retail packaging, including everything as if they were new. Must helped me with the audio levels before we recorded. I'm very happy with it. I considered buying one three years ago, but wasn't sure considering the price. I was just getting into podcasting and video conferencing. Since then, I figured it was a worthy upgrade. I went to my retired friend's house for a 4th of July cookout. It started with an agreed upon repair on one of his toilets. We've replaced the most stubborn supply line valve we have ever seen, including replacing the flush valve in the recovery tank. What was more American than fixing an American Standard brand toilet with a Corky brand replacement parts that were made in the USA? I mean, you can't get more American than that. And you can't get a better friend than
1: to help you fix a toilet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he's not getting around too well anymore, so him stooping down to try to crawl behind a toilet was not happening. So I was glad to help him. We couldn't verify that the toilet was American or Mexican-made since we didn't have to remove it from the sanitary drain because they usually stamp that on the bottom. But it's close enough.
0: America is America, right? (laughs) This is true.
2: Yeah, we're going to be one country. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if, I, if you go south of the mid-part of Texas, you're basically in Mexico. A friend I went to high school with was celebrating her birthday that week. Since I needed to leave for work on the 11th, I treated her to dinner on the 10th. She wanted to go to Applebee's for dinner. We finished dinner off with a visit to the custard stand I mentioned in the previous episode. It was a few minutes away from the Applebee's. I haven't seen her in almost two years. All we have had was text and phone calls to keep in contact with. The rest of my week was spent watching TV while holding the couch down. I was quite successful because the couch never moved once. How about you, That's Eric? That's a good thing. Oh, yeah. You have to watch these couches because they can move. And once they get going, you They'll can't stop They'll just
0: run right out the door on you. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. They're big. You can't stop them. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I've never had that
1: happen, so I'll have to take your word for it. Let's see. This month, it has been the year of old laptops so far, I have to say. So this month, I had yet another one. I spent some time getting this one ready. This This one also came from my in-laws, who must have just had a stack of them somewhere. So I'm getting it ready to send to a different relative who could use a a system that Actually, for their children, they, they want to have one, so it's a starter system. I really like being able to repurpose these older machines, which is why people keep giving them to me, which is fine by me. Um, and it's also just a fun challenge to see if I can do it. Uh, this one is a Dell Inspiron 17R model N7110. It has a second-gen Core i5-2410M CPU running at 23 gigahertz with 4 gigs of RAM and a 256-gigabyte Samsung Evo 940 SSD. It originally had a different conventional spinning disk hard drive, but I remember upgrading this one several years ago to an SSD when my in-laws were having some troubles with performance. And of course, as is almost always the case, putting an SSD in place of a spinning disk uh, increases performance, usually dramatically. (laughs) Uh, And that was the case with this one as well. So then they used it happily for a number of years after that. So it is running Windows 10, uh, which is what the intended recipient prefers to use, so it didn't win the argument on trying Linux, but it's okay because the win was getting this machine to work again and and getting it ready for someone else to use rather than it ending up in a landfill, so. When I first booted it, it was very slow, uh, which I can't say is surprising considering how old it is uh, and the fact that it's running Windows 10 processor was completely pegged and uh, only having four gigabytes of RAM was not helping either. I decided to clean the fans and thermal system to see if I can uh, get it to run better. And it turns out that the thermal paste had separated from the CPU. So the thermal properties, you know, obviously there was nothing conveying that heat. So the CPU was essentially nearly burning itself out. So stepping down uh, performance wise, cleaned it all up and put some new paste on i also added another four gigabytes of ram while i had the cover off and i was surprised to find that once all of that was done it ran actually really well (laughs) way better than i thought it would i actually sat there and used it for about an hour just really kind of surprised that it was you know working as well as it was so that i feel like was a, a pretty big win and um it's fun also to play with older laptops because their design has changed so much in the last decade or so of laptops. This one is made of that really shiny black plastic that everything seemed to be made of back then where you just barely touch it and there's a fingerprint on it, so it always looks filthy. so you know of course it's <laughs> it's a gigantic you know blob of that basically. you know why they ever use that, who knows, but I guess it was just some sort of trend. The display. It's not terrible, but it's definitely one of those last-gen IPS panels with the really bad viewing angles and sort of the fuzzy appearance. It just doesn't have that crisp detail that even the like most basic newer panels have. And it also is sixteen hundred by nine hundred, which is you know on a this is a seventeen-inch laptop, so on a screen that big, I mean, it gives you a little more real estate, but still it, you're kind of missing out. And a new seventeen-inch would be at least nineteen twenty by ten eighty, if not you know much larger. So The one standout feature is really the keyboard. And I think if you have older laptops, you know what I'm talking about, where there's a lot of travel on the keys and it just has a nice progressive feel to it. And part of that hour sitting there playing around with it was just typing because it was so enjoyable (laughs) to type on one of these keyboards. Unfortunately, most laptops are pretty thin these days and the, one of the first things to go is a is a long travel keyboard in favor of like the little scissor switches. So.
0: Right. I remember my old T430, which I'm just about to mail to a friend, uh, had a much better keyboard than any machine I've had since.
1: Yeah. Those old Thinkpads and not even that old, but the, that generation, all except the new generation of Thinkpads generally had good keys. And unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame to see that they are cutting it out. So. I have to imagine there's going to be some blowback on that, and hopefully they'll change their mind, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I've I've got a 430, a 540p. I sold my 560 to someone else here. I've got a 580, and my wife has a 590, and the 430's keyboard is by far the best. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear it, that's for sure. That's what I got up to this month.
0: Alright, let's move into updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Everyone should know of the Mint 21.2 Victoria release by now. The upgrade path went smoothly on four of my machines with the fifth yet to go, except for a hiccup which was not caused by anything in Mint. Apparently SoftMaker still has not updated their PPA language and are using a deprecated command. Uh, so, I get an error message. I'd have to clear that and then it'd go on installed perfectly. I am still waiting for the release of Bodhi 7 official, but it is in RC status at present. And BlendOS 3 will not be appearing under Beautiful Failures this episode.
2: Dale? Debian released update 12.1 on the 22nd of July. Many package updates along with security fixes. Links in the show notes. Debian announced that they officially support the RISC-V architecture. Currently, only SID, which is the Unstable branch, and the Experimental branch supports the RISC-V64 architecture. If development goes as planned, it will be available in Debian Stable when Debian 13 Trixie is released. It is due out sometime in June of 2025. And I'm not going to see what Trixie reminds me of. The link will be in the show notes. Trixie is for kids. Yeah, yeah. Let's go off that. (laughs) (laughs) David Harder of the Solus team released a blog post titled State of Solus, August 2023. This is a follow-up to the blog post that Joshua Strobel released this past spring titled A New Voyage. Since then, they have grown to a team of 16 volunteers they have been working on cross-training people so that they can cover the duties of other members when required. They, uh, they said they wanted to eliminate the bus factor and burnout Because that was the complaints of the existing team members saying that they were just tired and it wasn't fun anymore. They have established roles and responsibility for these roles. At the beginning of July, they released Solus 4.4 which is a much-needed refresh of their ISO. And the uh, link will be in the uh, show notes, so we can move on to Eric.
1: Much like Moss, I was focused on upgrading some Linux Mint systems. I had two of them, my laptop and my desktop, and both of them were successfully upgraded to 21.2. I appreciate the new features, in particular the gestures control panel that was added in 21.2 allows for mapping of touchpad gestures to a variety of built-in actions as well as the ability to add custom ones other nice features to have are a refreshed ui for software manager which now also includes Flatpak in the featured app section as well as new folder icons mint software manager is already one of the most usable in my opinion and the icons are bright and beautiful which is part of why i enjoy cinnamon Even if I'm using Cinnamon on a different distro, I will still install the Mint themes and icons because it's not the same without them.
0: I will point out that while Eric installed Linux Mint Cinnamon, I am using Linux Mint Mate. Uh, So
1: a little bit different. They do a good job of making them very consistent, though. It's, you know, they're different, but very similar.
0: I tried using Cinnamon for a while, and the bells and whistles just were a little distracting for me. Understood. Anyhow, let's move on to the shortest... Part of the show, Beautiful Failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. Amazingly, I've had no failures this month. Dale?
2: I didn't have any failures except for my lack of motivation to organize stuff in my closets. But who really does? That doesn't
1: count. (laughs) I usually have my fair share of failures, but I didn't do enough extracurricular activities this month to make any. I promise I'll make at least one notable one very soon. (laughs) Let's move on to the reviews.
0: Thank you, Eric. This month, I'm reviewing BlendOS Version 3, Plasma Edition. I've been waiting for this for a long time, as you've heard on the show. And it's almost ready now. Rudra Sarasvat tells me there is 10 times the interest in this project as there is in all his other projects, including Unity X and Ubuntu Unity. And apparently he has a fairly large team working on this project with him. I suppose the first thing to do is define what is an immutable distro. I got the following statement from itsfoss.com with a link in the show notes. An immutable distro ensures that the operating system's core remains unchanged. The root file system for an immutable distro remains read-only, making it possible to stay the same across multiple instances. Of course, you can change things if you would like to, but the ability remains disabled by default. How is it useful? Traditionally, immutable distributions existed to allow for easier testing and container-based software development. Furthermore, immutability provides you with better security and reliable updates for your operating system. They didn't explain any of that, but they made the statements. And yes, this is an immutable distro. I think it's the first one we've reviewed on this show. My hardware, I used my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P as usual. This computer has a fourth generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ, 16 gigs of RAM, and a 512 gig Silicon Power SSD with both Intel HD graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT 730M graphics. I installed it using the entire disk. Installation ease and issues. Everything installed easily and without much thought. I'm pretty sure it was the Calamaris installer. Yeah, once you get the hang of using a particular installer, you just don't think about it. You answer the question and move on. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. After installation, I rebooted and had to set up my user account. I got a few repos authorized, including the Aurora Store and f Repos available include Arch, Alma Linux 9, Crystal Linux, Debian Bookworm, Fedora 38, Kali Linux Rolling, Neurodebian Bookworm, Rocky Linux, Ubuntu 22.04, Ubuntu 23.04, plus the ability to run NixOS with a single slash multi user installation. You could get all of them working at the same time, but you can also save room on your disk by only picking a few of them. I looked for updates in Discover and some installed, however the system updates will all be done in the background and you should never need to run those. I attempted to install some flat packs, two worked, two did not. I left alone for a few days, came back to it, and the other flat packs installed without a problem, and I have a fully working system. If you don't like the desktop in use, you can open a terminal and type sudo system track And BlendOS currently has support for Gnome, KDE Plasma, Cinnamon, XSCE, Deepin, Mate, and LXQT desktops, and more are being explored and worked on. And finally, two new command utilities have been introduced. One is System and the other is User. System will allow you to install packages and even switch tracks, whereas User will enable you to create slash manage containers and their associations. BlendOS also runs VS Code, Android Studio, and many other IDEs, so you can get your programming licks in if you have any. The system comes with only Office installed. I left it in. There are a lot of programming tools not often found in user systems, and I'm sure if you're much of a programmer, you'll enjoy that. Ease of use. You boot BlendOS and you run it. For the most part, it's every bit the same as working with any other distro. You want the internet, you open a browser. You want an Office package, you run that. Everything is in containers. It is nearly impossible to crash your system or find it infected. When you open a process, you get a little dialog box which informs you it was loaded as a background process. This is nice to know, especially for security-conscious users, many of whom may choose to use this system. When there are updates, the entire system is updated all at once, atomically, they call it. Because of this, I would probably not recommend using Blend on an underwhelming system, as all this containerization will use resources and storage, but you probably won't notice it on most machines. On mine, it's running almost as quickly as Bode 7, but I would not install on a Chromebook or IdeaPad without having enough RAM and disk. I also note that there is a trick to using one package manager or another. It's not just a simple task of opening a terminal and typing sudo apt install x. I know it's there in the documentation, but I never thought about this enough to explore until sometime right before the show, and so I just went with what's in the show notes.
2: Have you noticed any delays in opening applications because of the containerized architecture?
0: I haven't, but then again, I'm on the fourth generation i7. Yeah. And it might be a little slow just for that, but I haven't noticed any issues at all. It's pretty cool. Memory and disk space, it uses a lot of disk, especially since I had four other repos authorized. I'm using 38.5 gigs of disk space. And from boot, it's running... Well, one time I booted it up and it said 1.3 gigs, and another time it said 1.4. So it's not a light system. You wouldn't expect a light system with all this containerization running. Those numbers are a bit steep. You would want a decent PC to run it on. But then again, you don't need a new one. My machine's from 2014. Ease of finding help. There are Telegram, Discord, Reddit, who knows what other groups. We're already on version 3 on this, and it just came out at the beginning of the year. most of the problems I had with the previous two versions have disappeared. I was, however, met with sarcasm more than help a few times, not from Rudra, so I hope their community gets friendlier. Plays nice with others. I did not test it for this, but I would assume it does not get along well in a multi-boot system. Since you can install and run programs from the repos of so many other distros, I don't think that's so much of an issue. If you want to dual boot it with Windows, I'm pretty sure you can manage that. Stability. If Rudra and his team have done their job and it appears they have, it just might be every bit as stable as Fedora Silverblue, and it's a lot easier to use. Gaming. You know I'm not a gamer, but the young people putting this distro together are, and they put a lot of effort into making sure the system will run everything which can run in Linux or on Steam. And they've been crowing about it with little to be heard from naysayers. Similar distros to check out. Well, there's nothing quite like BlendOS. There are a few other distros with immutable kernels, but none with such a wide crossover of systems and apps. But just in case you're interested in what other immutable distros there are, here's a list. Carbon OS, Fedora Silverblue, Flat Car Container Linux, Nix OS, GUIX, OpenSUSE Micro OS, Vanilla OS, Bottle Rocket, Talos Linux, and Endless OS. My ratings, ease of installation, for a new or experienced user, it's the same, about 9 out of 10. If you really know Calamaris, you can make it a 10 easily. Hardware issues, 9 out of 10. Ease of finding help in the community and web, 9 out of 10. Like I said, I did get some sarcasm rather than help on a couple of times I talked to the community. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others, I would say, well, I'm just just going to leave it at X. Uh, it's probably good with Windows and poor with any Linux distro. Gaming, 8 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. And my overall rating is 8.5 out of 10. Final comments. This easily could be the distro of the future. I know there are many who are resistant to immutable distros, but this feels so flexible it's hard to even notice the straitjacket. You're left with a secure, almost crash-proof distro with every piece of candy you ever wanted on your system, or you can forego the sweets and just enjoy the stability. If it played nicely on a multi-boot system, I would keep it on one of my computers. I'm just not ready to ditch Mint or Bodhi for it yet. I will point out that the base system is Arch. I don't know why I didn't mention that sooner. If you open a terminal and you run an Arch command, it will know what you're doing. If you run apt or something else, you have to be in the right container or something, and I'll figure that out some other day. That's about it for me. Uh, What do you have for us this month, Eric?
1: I took a look at Pop!OS 2204. I haven't tried Pop!OS for a number of years. I did use it when it first came out in 2017, and I've tried it a few times since then to see the evolution of it, so if there was a new release I would take a look at it, but it hasn't always really grabbed my attention, so I did want to check back in because it's been a while. and. I also think one of the reasons that I haven't really stuck with it is the last few years has seen just a tremendous number of competing options vying for my attention. And at the end of the day, or at least for now, Pop! OS is yet another Ubuntu-based distro with a handful of changes and additions. Granted, these changes make all the difference, and that's the secret to the success that Pop! OS has seen. However, they weren't really strong enough, I guess, to win over the competition for me. Please note, And I'm sorry for the little bit of snark here that I'll henceforth be referring to the distro known formally as pop exclamation point underscore OS as simply pop or pop OS. Because I find the actual name to be a little bit silly and difficult to type and say aloud. I know they don't expect you to say the punctuation, but System76 claims that this is their quote. We think computing should be fun and that the pop name and energy it portrays matches our desire for our users to enjoy their time using the OS we create for them. Fair enough, and maybe I'm just being a grump for not liking it. To each their own, I suppose. My hardware for this review, I'm using my main system, a Dell XPS 15 9570 laptop, which has an eighth generation Coffee Lake Intel i7-8750H, which is a six core 12 thread processor running at 4.1 gigahertz. It has 32GB of DDR4-2666 RAM, a Toshiba 256GB NVMe, and crucial 1TB SSD drive. Hybrid NVIDIA graphics, with the NVIDIA portion being a GTX 1050 Ti Mobile, and Intel Coffee Lake HGT2 UHD Graphics 630. Installation Ease and Issues POP offers two versions of the installation ISO, one for NVIDIA graphics and another for non-NVIDIA graphics. I think that's kind of a smart idea. For anyone who needs an NVIDIA driver, they can have a disk with it already embedded. The NVIDIA version is 3.2 gigs in size, and the other is 2.6 gigs. While booting, and this is a fun quirk of, of Pop! OS that I've never seen anywhere else, the usual scrolling text that you see that's going by and sort of explaining what's happening with the system is made slightly more entertaining by the fact that it is huge. I'm <laughs> not sure if anyone can picture this or has ever used POP, but it's sort of a trademark. And I'm assuming it's because they had feedback or maybe they have some panels that are very high resolution and that the normal text that you would see in a Linux distribution would be too small to read. So they said, oh, can't read it? <laughs> okay. Uh, Anyway, not really anything important. I just find it to be one of those fun little quirks that makes Pop different. Might
0: get Dale to weigh in on this, since he he does have a System76 machine.
2: Have you ever noticed that, Dale? I haven't installed it in a long time, Uh, because I was running Pop on my desktop. Oh, I can't even remember how many years ago it was. But I've actually had my Pangolin for... Oh, good heavens, what? It's been... I think it's going to be going on three years this March, Moss, don't you think?
0: Yeah. Sounds about right. I don't think it's that old, is it? Really?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking it was 2021, (laughs) I think, is when I got it. I'll have to uh, sign into my account and look, but I know I've had it at least two, but it's the same installation. Took it out of the box.
1: Got it. Yeah, you, you really only see it when it's booting from that live ISO.
2: But I think I remember what you're talking about with the animations that go across and stuff. But I, like I said, I haven't installed it. I'm going to say I installed it. I was running it maybe three years ago, maybe. Three years ago would be 20. Yeah, I'm thinking it was 2019, 2020.
0: Oh, they have made a lot of changes since then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they really have. Okay, let's give Eric his review back.
1: (laughs) So they use a customized version of the elementary OS installer. There's some sort of kismet between the two projects. There's a few bits and pieces that uh, get borrowed back and forth. The steps to install are similar to most other installers, which includes selecting your language, location, keyboard layout, disk partitioning, and finally installing the operating system. Choosing the custom option provides a simple point-and-click interface. You click the existing partition and select Use Partition. From there, you're able to select the mount point, whether you would like to also format the partition, and if so, which file system to use. It would be helpful to see the partition labels and other information like with many other installers. In this case, you do have to kind of know which partitions are being used by what because you really don't see any of the label information.
0: Yeah, that's probably the biggest downside to a new user.
1: Yeah, yeah, big time.
0: When you have to go back and boot up to something else to find out what your partitions are
1: holding right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you need to make larger changes, there's a button labeled Modify Partitions, which opens gparted, the GNOME Partition Editor. I'm reasonably confident that most people are familiar with this application, or at least the idea of what a partition editor does. So I'm not going to cover the actual steps you use inside of that application. Once you've made changes and closed gparted, the new layout is reflected in the installer automatically, allowing you to select which partitions to use and continue installing. I like that the Erase and Install button isn't clickable until you've selected at least a bootloader location and a root partition. There's a small question mark button at the bottom that opens the help window explaining how to use the screen that you're looking at, which is a nice touch. After you've clicked Erase and Install, The installer begins the installation routine in the background and you're asked to enter your full name and username to choose a password as well. Then a progress bar is displayed while a slideshow flips through slides describing the features of POP, which is all pretty standard stuff. Finally, you're asked to reboot to begin using the newly installed system.
2: One thing I do distinctly remember from when I did install POP was it. Went through the install, because it's a custom install. It's not using Ubiquity. It's something they came up with themselves, if I'm not mistaken. But when you rebooted after the install, that's when you had to create your user. So did they change that?
1: They did, yeah. So that had been running in like OEM mode, I think. Okay. Is what they call that, where you don't input the user information until it boots that first time with the expectation that it's installed and ready to go. And then when the person gets it and turns it on, they then put in their own information, kind of like an Android device or something.
2: Yeah, that must be the difference that they've made in the ISO since then, because that's the experience I had when I bought my Pangolin. You turned it on, you typed in, you used your name and et cetera. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: You can actually do that with uh, Ubiquity as well. There's just a, you have to run it in OEM mode. That's all. All right. So post-installation hardware facts and issues. If you choose to encrypt your disk during the installation process, you will be presented with a very nicely themed screen asking for your password to continue booting. This is in stark contrast to most implementations of this feature, which have no type of theming and simply show a small prompt at the bottom of the initial boot screen. There have been many times when I miss the fact that the system is sitting there and waiting for my password because I couldn't (laughs) see it because I wasn't paying attention, I guess. And this approach is way nicer, in my opinion, because it's very obvious, like, hey, put in your password if you want to keep booting. Something else to mention is you won't get the option to encrypt your disk unless you are choosing the full takeover install. If you're doing any kind of custom partitioning, it's not going to be able to encrypt the full disk, which is what it's trying to do if you do a full takeover, which is just the standard installation. When logging in for the first time, a notification is displayed at the top of the screen if there's any updates available. Clicking the notification, unfortunately, doesn't seem to do anything, so it's up to the user to know that they have to go and open the pop shop which is their software manager, and switch to the installed tab, the tab is literally called installed, to see what's available. I performed the installation using the most recent ISO. It showed nine updates available, or 441.1 megabytes worth of files to download. An interesting quirk of this software manager is that it considers all of the system updates to be one update. So really it was nine updates, but eight program updates, and then the ninth was 147 system updates. So it, was, it wasn't It was just nine, but that's the way they choose to characterize it. So fair enough.
0: Yeah, I'm noticing that fairly common in Plasma uh, desktops. That that's just the way Discover handles it.
2: Gotcha. And it gets even squirrelier when you start adding flat packs.
1: <laughs> I imagine that's true. Discover and I, I won't get into it, but we don't always have see eye to eye, let's say. <laughs> there is also a welcome screen that takes you through choosing the most frequently changed options or required settings. It begins by asking you to select a style for the dock. This is an excellent example of bubbling up a configuration option that is available in the settings panel, but sort of buried a little bit. And this makes it so much easier for a user to make a definitive and straightforward choice rather than needing to figure out where to go to to set it. Continuing to go through the welcome screen, the options available for the dock are no dock, dock extending to the edges, which is the default option, and Doc doesn't extend to the edges, and so it's just containing the icons that are available. As you add more icons, it'll grow, obviously.
0: They don't have the default What's Up, Doc?
1: <laughs> you just had to, didn't you? That's okay. I'll allow it this time. That's the one you get. <laughs> uh, let's see. So in addition to the small icons shown below each option on the welcome screen, depicting the appearance of what the dock will look like once you make that choice, Selecting the option actually immediately is reflected on the dock itself, so you know exactly what's happening. It couldn't be any easier to understand and is an exceptional example of outstanding user interface, user experience design. Truly, just like that, so simple it couldn't be any easier and better than it is. And that's sort of pervasive throughout here as I go through, you'll see more of that. The default option of having the dock extend to the edges is interesting and I'm going to assume a little polarizing. It extends to the edges horizontally as you would expect, however visually there's a lot of empty space on either side of the icons which are centered by default. You can change the position of the icons to the left or right as well, which makes more sense visually, at least to me. Maybe it's all those years of using a conventional Redmond desktop design, but it just looks odd in the center. Although the default layout for Windows 11 is very similar to that, so maybe that's just sort of a new design thing that I didn't get included on the discussion. Who am I to stand in the way of progress, especially when I'm provided with the ability to change it back? I actually chose to not extend the dock, have it appear on the left side of the screen, and to also auto-hide when not in use. Take that, System76 design team. <laughs> The next option allows you to configure the appearance of the top bar such as which buttons appear and where the dock is located. The next screen introduces and explains how to use another of my favorite features, the launcher. This is similar to Plasma's KRunner feature or the one that I normally use, which is called ULauncher. These are often referred to as Rofi or Rofi style launchers, named after one of the more well-known examples of this type of utility. They allow you to start typing the name of an application and then By pressing enter, you would launch it. They also typically allow you to do things like access system settings directly and even rebooting the system or doing simple math problems. The next screen introduces four finger touchpad gestures, which are enabled by default, and they allow you to see either the workspace screen or the Windows overview screen. Next, you can choose between light and dark themes, with dark being the default option. After that, you can decide to enable location services, which are disabled by default. On the next screen, you pick your time zone by either clicking a location on the map or entering text into the search field. Continuing on, you are now able to enable or configure any of your online accounts that you would like to have integrated, which is a standard GNOME feature, but this just bubbles it to the surface so that you can make that choice as part of the setup. And if you add any of those accounts, then they would show up in standard GNOME helper applications like Calendar and email clients and things like that. You can decide to skip the screen if you don't wish to in- include any of your online account information. And I just wanted to mention, you may not be aware, but this is a really easy way of accessing Google Drive for those of you that use Google Drive. If you add your Google account, you have the option of turning on access to files. And what that does is enable a shortcut to drive in the files utility. And so you just literally click on it, and then it shows you the contents of your Google Drive and then you can copy things, move things around, directly edit things. It's very handy and it's nice to have it directly integrated and I see people asking that question pretty frequently, how do I get Google Drive on Linux and this is a really simple way. The final screen of uh, the welcome setup lets you know that you're done, hooray, (laughs) and encourages you to enjoy using your new desktop. Ease of use. Pop uses the Pop Shop software store which is based on Elementary's App Center. It provides access to software located in the Pop! OS proprietary and release repos, as well as Ubuntu's Jammy, Jammy Security, Jammy Updates, and Jammy Backports repos. In addition, access to Flatpaks hosted at flathub.org is already pre configured. This provides users with quite a lot of software, as well as compatibility with dev files uh, that are made for Debian, which almost any company making software for Linux generally makes available. If a user were to download a dev file from somewhere, there is a utility named eddy, which assists in installing the file if you just double click on it. If there is more than one source available for any given package, a drop-down list is available to switch between them in case you would prefer the native dev package over a flat pack, as it appears as though flat packs are the default option offered. POP uses the GNOME desktop environment, and as does almost every other distro that uses GNOME, modifies it quite a bit to suit their purposes. Most of those distros pre-install and configure third-party extensions to change GNOME's behavior in some way. System76 took this further by creating a set of its own extensions. These include Cosmic Dock, Cosmic Workspaces, Cosmic X11 Gestures, Pop Shell, and System76 Power, all of which add some intriguing feature which differentiates Pop from other GNOME-based distros. Cosmic Dock enables a dock somewhat similar to Dash to Panel, which I talked about a little bit earlier on and as part of the welcome setup. Trash, it offers the same basic features of dash to dock My guess is that they forked dash to dock at some point and added <laughs> their own touches to it, which seems to be what Ubuntu did and several other distros as well. They also provide a variety of ways to customize the desktop, such as mapping the super key to several different options, enabling hot corners, what to show on the desktop bar, enabling Windows controls, setting the background image, switching between light and dark modes, and configuring the behavior of workspaces. Now, the reason I went over all of those is because they're actually in part of the GNOME settings panel. So they are a lot of the features that you would find in tools like tweaks or the extension dash to dock or third-party applications, and they've taken the time to make it first class and actually put it in the settings panel so it's very professional. And also from a user's perspective, it's fewer places to have to keep track of Oh, where do I change this? Where do I change that? It's all in one place. It makes it just a much nicer experience. And it's not difficult to see that the amount of care that went into this based on things like that. And I really give System76 a lot of credit for that. Memory and disk use. I ran the while true do free dash HM sleep 10 done command, which is just a real simple loop routine. So every 10 seconds, it's running free dash HM. The reason I do that is if you watch uh, the memory usage of a Linux system when it first boots, there's a little bit of volatility until it sort of settles down. And that's just things starting and closing, you know, that sort of thing in the background. It ended up leveling out at 1.1 gigabytes used, which, you know, is not nothing, but it's a gnome based desktop. So with running some pretty heavy extensions and uh, actually I'm surprised (laughs) it was only 1.1. I expected it to be more. System 76's documentation lists the memory requirements as four gigabytes minimum, although I have to imagine four gigabytes would be very, very difficult because you'd be probably hitting the swap file or swap partition quite a lot. So the recommended 8 gigabytes uh, is probably a better idea. I use DF-h space forward/for root to show that a base installation used 9.2 gigabytes of disk space, which was another surprise. Uh, most distros use quite a bit more than that, but that's also reflected in the lack of software included in the in- base installation. Besides the usual GNOME system utilities and things like calendar, c- calculator, weather, there's only the LibreOffice suite installed. So I'm kind of torn on this. I personally like that lightweight approach, but I can see how others might think this is, you know, kind of gets in the way because now they have to go download a utility that might have been included in a different distro. So, yeah, I, I personally do like this approach, though.
0: Let me butt in here and state that they have been working for the last year or two moving away from GGK 4 And the word is that they're gonna use EFL for their uh, scripting language for their future desktop and maybe they're just doing it a section at a time or something, but eventually it will be GDK free. Uh, I don't know why they didn't just use Enlightenment or Moksha, but uh, they are using the basic library that underlies those.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, they seem to be in the mindset of just doing it themselves. And I agree with you. If you look at their blog, they are sort of doing it in pieces. That's each successive update in the blog is, we've added this feature, you know, and it, so they're definitely doing it piecemeal, which is probably the best way to do it, I guess. Focus on something till you get it right.
0: Which is why I haven't tried it lately. I'm waiting for them to finish Cosmic. Uh.
2: (laughs) Well, I, I think it could possibly be maybe compatibility or just the development constructs for Rust because I know they're big into using Rust and maybe the EFL doesn't have the support for Rust.
0: I don't know enough to respond to that, but I would if I did.
2: (laughs) I knew enough to be able to regurgitate that, but... Yeah, I'm with you. There you go. <laughs>
0: well, I do know that EFL is a pain to work with. I would have used a B word, but I decided we're a family-oriented show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I know, I know that uh, Robert and Stefan at the Bodie Project keep encouraging people to work on it just in case they can find someone that can do it better than they can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just throw the net out there and see what you catch, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, you never know. All right, so ease of finding help. System76 provides an extensive and detailed knowledge base, pop chat using Mattermost, which is an open source alternative to Slack if you've never heard of that. It also provides a GitHub repository for reporting bugs and issues and a number of System76 specific social media accounts, including the artist formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I assume you'd be able to ask a question using any of these methods. Uh, I can't be sure, but I I don't think they're going to yell at you if (laughs) if you had a POP question. I've heard good things about their support team, although I don't know how much emphasis they're going to place on helping any random POP user versus a paying hardware customer. Uh, I'm sure they would help you if they could. I think POP is pretty popular enough that you would be able to find an answer to your question without too much difficulty just by searching. I didn't need to contact anyone myself, so I don't have first-hand experience. Well,
0: Dale and I both do have experience with System76 support, and they are as friendly and open and fast as you can find, in my experience.
2: Yes, and they will help you with things that you wouldn't even think that they would even help you with. I can't remember. I had something on my laptop at one point, and I couldn't get it to work, and just on a whim, I emailed them and prefaced it by saying you know i know you don't can't support everything under the sun but do you have any idea why this isn't working and like two or three days later they're like oh yeah you just do this this and this and it fixed it
0: yeah my old kudu 3 the only problem i had that they couldn't solve was someone threw away all the manuals for the 2016 kudu 3 and all they have is a quick start guide but they tried and when I told them I was missing a screw-on a machine, they sent me a whole packet of screws They say, see if any of these fit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have to admire the, the try-hard, right? That's good. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I was going to buy, sorry for the aside here, but I was going to buy a System76 machine instead of this Dell XPS that I have, but it would have taken them like three months to fulfill my order, and I just couldn't wait, so I ended up with this instead. But uh, anyway, plays nice with others. I should just say, it doesn't. <laughs> I wasn't able to get Pop to automatically recognize in other installed distros, so the immediate answer is no. It doesn't play nice with others. However, there are ways to manually add additional boot options. Pop uses systemd boot, which is something that I haven't spent much time with. I've used it a few times with distros that include it, but that's been the limit of my exposure. This review gave me the opportunity to do so, so... <laughs> I'm not going to go into exhaustive detail, but here's the basic steps I took to do so. Because I get a sense that systemd boot just isn't very well understood or is popular. So, like I said, this gave me the opportunity to learn, and I'm glad I did. So, I already had Linux Mint 21.2 installed, as I mentioned, uh, and put POP on a separate partition on the same drive itself. The installer creates a file inside of slash boot slash EFI slash loader slash entries directory. In this case, named pop underscore os current dot c-o-n-f. The file contains a few configuration options, such as the title that is shown in the boot menu, whenever you're seeing that at boot time. Pointer to the bootloader file itself, in this case vmlinuz.efi. I thought a good place to start would be just make a copy of this file as a starting point for adding my own. And I figured that <laughs> this is the known good, so I'll, try, I'll start with that. I renamed it to linux-mint.conf, edited it to change the title as well as the pointer to the correct EFI file. I also needed to change the loader.conf file to show the entry for Linux Mint as well as the boot menu itself, because normally POP doesn't show a boot menu. To make this happen, I added the options show-other-entries underscore equals true and timeout equals 10 to give it a 10-second timeout. You can obviously set that to whatever you'd like. I rebooted, and the menu was displayed, and I was able to choose which distro to boot. Hooray! Uh, I noticed that Linux Mint was in the top, and I would have expected it to show underneath, since it's not the main distro. Of You know, most grub entries, it shows the main distro first, and then any others below that. So... I went back and read that there was a way to change the sort, sorting by title, which is sort of cheating. It's, <laughs> it doesn't actually, you know, if it, let's say the primary one was a, alphabetically after the second one, right? That wouldn't have worked unless I changed it to ascending. And even then, it's sort of <laughs> not exactly the the same thing, but it got me what I needed. And at the end of playing around I actually figured out that you know how systemd boot works that I can manually enter another entry and configure it but it's not going to do it for me one of the main talking points that they say that someone might want to use when explaining systemd boot or why you might use it over grub is that it's easier to configure and as I just explained if you've ever you know messed around with grub it's a little more difficult to get the right file, to set the options properly, and then you have to actually deploy it uh, so that it installs properly. So I think to a new user, this might be a little bit easier, although I did have to create loose files and do some different things. So maybe at the end, it's a wash.
0: Let me tell you about my lord and savior grub customizer.
1: (laughs) Yes,
0: it's very easy to use. You just have to install it. <laughs> this is true. It is much. But easier. But you have to have Grub to work with, because yeah. it will. Yeah. Anyhow, I well, I've so interrupted. No, too no,
1: many no, times. no, no, no. <laughs> so actually, you're 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 good because when I went into Linux Mint and did exactly that, thinking, oh well, maybe it'll show up. Nope. Of course, it's not because there's no Grub entry for Pop. So I took that path. It just didn't work for me. So anyway, like I said, I'm happy that this gave me an opportunity to try something new, which is, to me, the whole point of distro hopping. I want to be challenged a little bit, entertained, and also educated, so. Stability. POP is based on Ubuntu LTS releases, so presumably it's stable. I did not encounter any issues due to System76's software, uh, nor the underlying system while testing, which is another way of saying, I didn't have any problems. Similar distros to check out, Ubuntu and Zorin OS, both of which use custom extensions to provide their own opinion of how GNOME should function. That's right, GNOME. Other people have opinions about how it should work. (laughs) Ratings. Ease of installation. For a new user, I'm going to say 10 out of 10 with the disclaimer that that would be for a clean install. If you were just going to let it take over the whole disk, it's as easy as can be. Uh, For experienced user, I went with the custom install scenario, which I still think isn't perfect because of not having the labels on the partitions. And, yeah, an experienced user might know that, but they might not. I think if they changed that, I would give it a higher score there. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10, no issues there. Ease of finding help between the community and and websites, Uh, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10 just because I don't think a lot of people understand what Mattermost is how to, you know, install it and get into it and stuff like that. I think that could be a bit of a barrier to entry. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. Plays nice with others, as I was just explaining. I'm going to say 5 out of 10 because it's possible but not easy. And stability, 10 out of 10s with an overall rating of 7 out of 10, which is lower than I'd like to give it, but some of those things do make it much more difficult than I think it should be. So my final comments, in case you think this review has been too long, and I'm sure there are at least some of you who do, I assure you that I could have kept going. <laughs> I, I didn't even touch on PopShell, a hybrid tiling system which bridges the gap between tiling window managers like i3 and traditional floating window desktops like GNOME, enabling you to use the best aspects of both. I have to leave those and other discoveries for you to find yourself. After all, my goal is to entice you to try a distro, not try it for you. So instead, I'll leave you with this. As with every other Linux distro, Pop OS is imperfect. It is, however, one of the least imperfect ones I can think of. They've taken the same basic ingredients of an Ubuntu LTS base and the GNOME desktop environment used by many other distros and have elevated it above the typical result. They bring an unmatched level of customization and attention to detail that is evident throughout. Not only do they make some fundamental changes to the way GNOME stock operates, They took the time to integrate those changes in such a way that makes it seem as if they were always intended to be there. The System76 team obviously includes people with a strong grasp on user interface and user experience design, and it shows in everything they've done with Pop!OS. They have taken the experience of creating Pop!OS and are currently working on their own custom desktop environment called Cosmic. They haven't committed to a release date because they're giving it the time it needs to be ready. That's a rare thing for a company or its developers to have that luxury. Most software is released before it's ready and then developed in public with the users acting as an unwilling QA team. I'm hoping that this means that Cosmic will be something special and it will succeed where others like the unfortunate Ubuntu Unity desktop failed. One last thing to think of. I often hear people complain that there are too many Linux distributions and that people developing them should just focus on the major distributions and pool resources. My evidence to the contrary is Pop! OS.
2: Now, Eric, did you have the uh, dock enabled? Yes, yeah, I used the dock. Okay.
0: I'm surprised with as many good things as you said about this that you still gave it a 7, because... We've had a lot nastier things to say about distros that we gave eights and eight and a halfs to.
1: I strive to be honest, and I'm, I think between the playing nice with others, because I think distro hoppers in particular are interested in whether or not something is going to easily dual boot. And I think the finding help aspect for new users might be challenging. And I think the install could be more difficult than it needs to be. So those are the breaks.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the reason why I brought up the dock... Is I noticed when I didn't have the dock enabled, the update notification that would come down from the uh, notification panel at the top where GNOME you know has it. If you click on it, it doesn't open Pop Shop. It doesn't do anything. But if you have the dock enabled and it has the Pop Shop icon in the dock, when it comes up with the little number one, like as you described, you know for the for the updates, mm-hmm. you click on it. It opens up fine.
1: So I waited a while. I was documenting things as I went. So it is possible that even though the notification was still showing that maybe the timeout had been reached or something in the background, I I think there's probably, you're right, that if it just popped up and I clicked it, it would most likely work. My guess is that it just, I waited too long or not. Maybe there was some other problem, but yeah, I did have the dock enabled um, and and I, this isn't unprecedented. I've had other instances in GNOME particular where a notification doesn't seem to hook up with whatever created it, so.
2: That, that's been my experience, too, with it, because it seems to be kind of not consistent.
1: Yeah. Well, that was my take on Pop! OS. Dale, how about you?
2: Well, when I was... Searching for something to do It kind of floored me When number one I hadn't reviewed Peppermint OS and two I've never used it I've heard of it and for some reason It would just go in one ear Out the other ear and I just Wouldn't remember it And it's also I don't hear it talked about much At least in the circles that I'm in So I thought well Time to uh, correct that. So in my, uh, my intro, the initial release was 13 years ago in May of 2010. It was based on Lubuntu LTS until the 11th release. It was initially called Peppermint. The name has an interesting history. The developers liked the utilities and the Linux Mint distro. They thought they could spice it up a little and thus Peppermint was created, which I thought was kind of clever. It was designed as a hybrid desktop focusing on local and web applications. OpenBox was used as the window manager for versions one through three and was replaced with LXDE for versions four through 10. It used components from XFCE in addition to LXDE, They use the site-specific browser or SSB feature of the Chromium browser where you can use a web-based website or service as a desktop application. They created an application called ICE which was released a couple months after the initial release of Peppermint. It was created to allow you to use the Chromium, Chrome, Firefox, and Vivaldi for your ICE-enabled website or service. ICE made it much easier to set up SSBs. Another benefit of ICE was the ability to integrate it into the menu system of the desktop, something Chromium's built-in crate and application shortcuts couldn't do. There was a three-year gap between versions 10 and 11. This was due to the passing of Peppermint CEO Mark Greaves on january fourteenth of twenty twenty. On the second of february, twenty twenty two, the eleventh version of Peppermint was available. There were many changes in this release, such as renaming it to Peppermint OS. It was rebased onto Debian Stable. Another change was the renaming of ICE to Kumo. On the second of october twenty twenty two, Peppermint added DevOne Edition, which is Debian with the systemd process removed. I believe they're using sysvnit if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong. I've never used dev1. They have ISOs for 32 and 64 bit of the Debian and dev1 editions. There is also a 64 bit ARM ISO. As of this episode, they are using Debian 12 Bookworm as a base quite a history. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. And I even, I even pared it down (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the uh, little nuggets in there that I unfortunately had to leave out. Gotcha. So my hardware, it's still my Dell Inspiron 13-753 though. I might resurrect my T460 because after talking with Moss, I realized that the T560 battery and the T460 battery are the same battery. So, depending on the, I guess, the age of the T560 battery, I might swap it out. Because I do not like typing on this Dell and Spron. Like, we, we talked before about keyboard travel, and this one has horrible keyboard travel. But in any case, it is an Intel dual-core i5-6200U, 2.8 GHz CPU. A 13-inch display using Intel HD Graphics 520. 8 gigabytes of RAM and a 128 gigabyte Samsung CM871 SSD. Installation ease and issues. The checksum file I downloaded had formatting errors, so I had to compare the checksum values to the file manually. I'm guessing the maintainers either are cutting and pasting them or manually editing the file. I think if they just pipe their chosen SHA sums output to a file, there wouldn't be any formatting issues. That's just an annoyance to me. It's very simple. You just pipe it out. You don't even have to save anything. It's automatically done. The ISO boots to a live session of XFCE showing the welcome screen. It has options to select packages and web browsers along with the peppermint hub, more on this later, and links to the documentation. There are also links to their Matrix, Mastodon, SourceForge, and Codeberg sites, with the latter being the code repository for Peppermint OS. The wallpaper was a view out the window with a blur effect in the background and some hanging potted plants in the foreground. There are three other uh, sceneries to pick from. My favorite was a scene of a waterfall similar to the American and Horseshoe Falls in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. And this is where I'm going to need Moss to do some lifting for me. <laughs> I was able to, even though he coached me on this, I don't think I can get my tongue to contort to doing this, but I was able to find where this image was taken using an online image search. The falls are called Godafoss. Godafoss. Okay, I remember, I remember that one. Located in a small town in northern Iceland called Fashol. Fáshál is good enough. I remember that one. Oh, here we go. Yeah. And the re- <laughs> what brought this on is, and I'm sorry, listener, I forgot your name. I didn't put it in the notes here. But we were discussing waterfalls, and I think either in Telegram or in Discord. And that's where we got curious where these falls were from. So the falls are fed by the Skjálfandaflioti River. Yes, what he said. There are many falls in the path of this river. If you look out of the Google Maps, I mean, there's several that um, it, I guess, cascades down. And I believe uh, Godafoss, or Gudafoss, I think, is the second to the last of the last falls. Godafoss. Yeah, Godafoss.
0: The, that is the. the. No, Godafoss. Anyhow, quit fooling around. Read your darn article. (laughs) (laughs) I just
2: included that because I thought it was interesting there. So, and I'm a wallpaper enthusiast. Anyways, the theme was a nice dark theme with red accents and red icons in the Thunar file manager. I like the circular icons in the panel and the rounded corners of the open applications in the panel. The link to install was on the desktop, which was the Calamaris installer. Once in Kalimaris, I was told that I wasn't connected to the internet, and the power wasn't connected to the laptop, which is the normal message you get with that. I connected to my phone's hotspot, but left it unplugged since I had 85% battery left. I opted to replace the partition installing over the previous Debian 12 installation. It was very simple install, even for Calamaris. I was asked about location, keyboard, and partitioning. I clicked install to begin the installation. The installation took about 11 minutes once I clicked on install. The all done window appeared with the restart now button uh, check by clicking done, rebooted the laptop. So the post installation hardware faction issues. They are using the whisker menu at the bottom of the screen through an our XFCE terminal peppermint hub. Like I said, more on this later. And in the overflow, it's the looks like an up arrow menu, up arrow symbol, opens another menu. There is a Synaptic, Package Manager, Text Editor, Advanced Network Configuration, Power Manager, and Run Program. The system tray has the usual icons with the addition of the peppermint update. There were no icons on the desktop. I clicked on the Peppermint update, which opened the terminal window, which prompted me for my password. Once entered, it ran NALA, a graphical replacement for app. I was shown a list of updates and asked if I wanted to proceed with the update. After pressing Y, it started downloading and installing updates. I noticed it finished with a few errors installing the kernel package, which prevented the installation. I tried running it again from the terminal manually and it had the same error. I then typed sudo apt update and saw that their multimedia repository changed its value from 12.0 to 12.1. Running apt-get update automatically updates this change. So I ran sudo apt upgrade and it reported three not fully installed or removed packages. I typed y to continue and it proceeded with generating the initramfs, while generating kernel 6.1.0-10-amd64, a very obscure error appeared. And I'm not going to read it, but basically the short version of it, a lot of depackage errors complaining about dependency problems. And it finally ended with error code 1. To answer the question of did I forget to mount it? Oh, I guess I should read that. One of the, where is it up here? It asks me if I, oh yeah, here it is. The very first line. hyphen firmware missing slash boot slash firmware. Did you forget to mount it? Now mind you, this is an Intel-based computer. To answer the question of did I forget to mount it? No, I didn't. Why would I need to mount the Raspberry Pi firmware on an x86 laptop? Why are you complaining about missing Raspberry Pi firmware on an x86-based computer. My third question was, why did you install it to begin with? I didn't experience this when I was reviewing Debian 12 Cinnamon. However, Moss had similar, if not the same, error while reviewing Debian 12 Mate. I knew I needed to remove the raspi firmware package. I was curious and searched for part of that error message and found a link to Stack Exchange's Unix Forms. In addition to moss, another person using Debian 12 had this error, though I didn't find any mentions of Peppermint OS in my other search results. This was quite a stubborn problem. I tried sudo apt purge raspy-firmware and sudo apt remove raspy-firmware. Neither one completed successfully, and it continued to give me the same error. So I tried dpackage since it's the underlying process that app calls, so I tried sudo dpkg space dash capital P raspy hyphen firmware, and it was successful. I then typed sudo dpkg space dash lowercase r raspy hyphen firmware, and it was also removed successfully. Running sudo apt upgrade was finally able to finish without any problems. Running it a second time showed zero upgraded, zero newly installed, zero to remove, and zero not upgraded. I rebooted the laptop and signed back in. I took a look at the slash etsy slash app slash sources.list file. They have the contrib non-free, and the new non-free-firmware enabled, along with the updates, proposed hyphen updates, and bookworm hyphen backports. And those are two you do not see very often, and I've never seen them in a default Debian install. I left the terminal and browsed around the desktop. The install is pretty much the default set of XFCE applications. They added Plank, which is a simple dock, Simple Scan, to a scanning application, mousepad, which is a text editor, and Menu Libre, to a menu editor. I noticed that a web browser and an Office application wasn't installed by default. I previously mentioned the Peppermint Hub. This is an application for easily accessing the system settings and installing popular packages and stores. The setting includes network printers, Disk Utility, which is GNOME H Block, it's like Ublock Origin, but it's system-wide, so it's more than just your browser. System Info, a modified version of NeoFetch without the ASCII logo displayed. XDaily, it's a utility for dealing caches and other maintenance activities. I think it also uh, will do the uh, trim on the drives if you have SSDs or NVMEs. Pulse Audio, the user groups, And XFCE settings. On the other side of the hub were links to App Image Hub, the Gnome Store, Snap Store, Flatpak FlatHub, and suggested packages. Last but not least is Synaptic. Inside the suggested packages is a list of applications such as Etrial Document Viewer, Parole Media Player, the GNU Firewall, it's G-U-F-W, SnapD, Flatpak, GNOME Software, and Timeshift. The available web browsers were Firefox ESR, Conqueror, GNOME, Web, Tor, Cute Browser, Chromium, and Falcon. I clicked on the Flatpak and GNOME Software icons. They opened a terminal window running NALA to install them. Flatpak still needed FlatHub enabled, and GNOME software needed the Flatpak plugin installed. It would have been nice to have that installed but the devs have their reasons. One nice touch is the icon to install them is grayed out showing that you've already installed them. I also use the suggested packages to install Firefox ESR which is version 102.14. An office package wasn't listed in the uh, suggested packages, so you're you're on your own for that one. I used Flatpak to install Signal Messenger and Telegram. I needed to log out and log in to access them from the application menu. While looking at the GNOME software settings, they have automatic install enabled by default along with the notification. I saw a notification that applications were installed, though only after opening GNOME software. I never saw any notifications that updates were available. Just like in Debian 12, updates were installed after reboots similar to Microsoft Windows. Turning the automatic install off will then notify you that there are updates available. I tried the Kumo application using Google Docs to test it. I am not sure what I'm missing. I opened Kumo and entered the name for the application menu entry followed by the URL for Google Docs. It never showed up anywhere except for in Kumo, which worked fine. It opened Google Docs in an application looking window and worked as it should. The issue I had is that Kumo didn't look like the screenshots from the Peppermint website. The screenshot showed many more options like where the uh, shortcut should be placed in the application menu. Maybe they had a version regression and didn't update the screenshot. I have installed all the updates, so I'm under the assumption that I have the current version. Due to work and health reasons, I didn't get a chance to ask in their forums about this. I noticed that Partis was still the default in Grub when I turned on the laptop. So I ran sudo update hyphen grub in the terminal of Peppermint OS. I saw the disabled OS Prober, despite that being enabled by default in Debian. I opened the terminal and used nano, which was installed by default, to edit the slash etc slash default slash grub, which is the grub configuration file. I added the line, in all capitals, grub underscore disable underscore OS underscore Prober equals, and in lowercase, false, to enable the OS Prober. I ran pseudo-grub uh, from the terminal, and it detected Pardis, installed on slash dev slash sda2. I rebooted my laptop, and Pardis was still in control of Grub. This was a good head-scratcher, and I just left it like that, because I did it a few more times, and I just gave up. Ease of use. I had no problems with the day-to-day use. The automatic update is not something I am a big fan of. I would turn that off and do everything from the terminal as I usually do. Anyone preferring the GUI would be fine with the update notifications or the auto-update. Though I do find it odd that you only get the update notification if you open GNOME software. However, you would see updates installed if you were watching the boot up process. It is very similar to how I remember Windows installing the, uh, the updates. Dale. Yeah.
0: My experience with Debian 12 is that you have to edit the grub as SU. Sudo won't do it.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: It is interesting you mentioned that because I was playing with Debian 12 and I don't think it was that
2: particularly, but I did run into something where Sudo did not work, so. I still have it on my Dell. I'll try that, see see what happens.
0: And when you're installing it, you have to have a separate admin password or you can't get into SU. If you have more than one user on your system, only the first user has access to SU, but you still have to have an admin password set. If you don't set an admin password, you can't use SU.
2: I had, going back on the the Pop! OS topic, I've had to enable the root user on Pop! OS for some applications I've installed where it only wanted the root processor, not the sudo, it wanted root. But my snarky comment was this going to be, why do you have to open no software to be told, oh, yeah, by the way, I installed software.
1: When it prompts you after you've done an update. Yeah, I know. That is silly.
2: Yeah. By the way, I did this.
0: Well, I got some fonts for my systems and I tried to install them. I forget which Debian base I was inst- trying to install it on, but I had not set an admin password and it just would not let me put the fonts anywhere that they'd be usable.
2: Hmm. Yeah, because mine specifically was HP-LIP, which is HP's printer application. And it's the only way I can use my scanner on my laser printer, is I have to connect in via USB, even though it should work over the LAN. And the only distro that I've ever gotten to work with was Gecko, (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't have installed. But in any case, in order to install the driver for the printer, it wants root. And by default, PopOS doesn't enable root. So in any case, we're moving on here. Memory and disk use. It's four and a half gigabytes of space use on the SSD. Like I said, this is a very bare distro. And 832 megabytes of memory used reported by Free-HM. And if I can remember the script that Eric made, I'm gonna try doing that for my uh, memory results. Ease of finding help. I didn't seek out any help. They do have a forum on SourceForge, Mastodon, and Matrix or other other choices. Any other forum that supports Debian would be sufficient. Plays nice with others. Well, yes it does. However, having OS Prober disabled doesn't help. Not being able to take control of Grub is another issue. I don't know what was changed in this, because it didn't happen in Vanilla Debian twelve, but our Previous discussion. It could be a sudo su issue, which there is some problems in the history, which I'm not going to go into. Where Debian changed the GNU utils with, and there was an update to su and sudo with path statements and stuff, which you can look up on your own. Stability, considering the Debian base, I didn't have any problems and really didn't expect any. Similar issues to check out. Debian XFCE, MX Linux XFCE, though it doesn't use systemd and uses some shims for applications that require it. And I haven't used it since 17, but some applications don't like those shims, so your mileage may vary. Linux Mint XFCE, Spiral Linux XFCE, and Pardis Linux.
0: I will point out there is a brand new MX out just the last couple days.
2: Yes, that's why I wanted to be fair. The last one I tried, I think was 17 or 18. Any case, ratings, ease of installation. For a new user, I'm gonna give it a 10 out of 10. That was the quickest Calimaris install if you're just wiping the disk and installing. An experienced user is gonna be 10 out of 10 as well. Little caveats, again, like I always do if you try to do partitioning, your mileage is gonna vary. The hardware issues is gonna be 10 out of 10. I didn't rate the uh, ease of finding help, but I did notice that their SourceForge uh, forum was quite busy. Ease of use, eight out of 10. Plays nice with others. I did eight out of 10 because it did dual boot, just not with the preferred default distro. And the stability is 10 out of 10. And my overall rating is nine out of 10. And for my final comments, Overall this is a well thought out distribution. The sparse selection of default packages is good for those that like to spend time installing their commonly used applications instead of spending an equal amount or more time removing applications. There are a few rough edges when it comes to the dual booting. I think the update notification needs some work for the automatic updates. The default is reasonable considering a fair percentage of people don't install updates. A notification as such wouldn't even be noticed to be honest so it's probably just a moot point. I think the lack of a browser and an office suite is a bit of a miss. I can understand freedom of choice and do recognize the ability to install a browser via the Peppermint hub. I think an option for an office suite would have been a good addition. I think Peppermint OS is a worthy option among the Debian spins. Now let's move on to new releases.
0: New releases this month from July 6th to August 9th RDS 19.0, Q4 OS 5.2, Solus 4.4, Blend OS 3 Batura, Cache OS 230709, Artix 20230710, Void 20230628, RSS 16.0, KOS 2023.07, Makulu Linux 2023-07-11, Tails 5.15.1, PC 2.3.3, IPFire 2.27-Core 176, Mint 21.2, all three flavors, Xero Linux 2023.07, Sparky Linux 2023.07, Bluestar 6.4.3, Hunix 17.0.3.0, Libre 11.0.3, Regatta 23.0.13. Neptune 8.0, Debian 12.1.0, NST 38-13644, OpenMediaVault 6.5.0, Sparky 7.0.1, SmartOS 2023-0727, KDE Neon 2023-0727, Zorin OS 16.3, 4M Linux 43.0, Maybox 23.07, OSMC 2023.07-1, PC Linux OS 2023.07, Nutix 23.07.0, MX Linux 23, OpenSense 23.7, Gnopix 23.8, Arch 2023.08.01, SNow 1.29, Xigma NAS 13.2.0.5, Kanema 7.2, Smart OS 2023.0.8.0.4, CacheOS OS 23.0.8.0.6, Tails 5.16, OpenMamba 2023-0802, Alpine 3.18.3, EasyOS 5.4.10, Rhino 2023.1, and Marina 1.13, also known as slash e-slash-OS for smartphones. And that's it. Let's move on to feedback. (music) Then we have something. Biku wrote, excellent episode as always, guys, really enjoyed it. Dale mentioned about updates being installed during reboot shutdown events. This happens because unattended upgrades are enabled by default, and they usually get applied during the reboot shutdown. You can easily disable this. To do so, run software-properties-gtk via terminal and go to the Updates tab and make sure that the options when there are security updates and when there are other updates are not set to download and install automatically. Instead, set them to display immediately. This will prevent the unattended upgrades that usually get applied during reboot or shutdown events. You guys rightly complained about the perplexing download page of Debian. Well, I have created a simple solution for that. A public gist that provides direct links to various Debian stable install media download pages And there's a link in the show notes for that. You guys also talked about sources.list file. I've also created a few gists that provide complete sources.list files for Debian Stable, Testing, SID, and Current Ubuntu LTS. And there are links to them in the show notes. And finally, here is a link to a little script that correctly installs Flatpak with Software Center and Desktop Integration. It works on Ubuntu and Debian, and it's called FlatJack, Link to its repo that's on GitHub. And there's a link in the show notes. Hope you guys will find this feedback useful. Bye for now. Biku. And I wrote, thanks for another wonderful bit of feedback, Biku. I'll let Dale and Eric do most of the responding as they seem to know what they're talking about. Your turn, Dale.
2: That is some valuable information to know. I think this depends on the version of GNOME software being used. I looked on Peppermint OS and I didn't see those options. The links you created are very helpful, especially for finding the Debian ISO files. The sources.list links are equally as helpful. Some of the repos are not commonly known, such as backports. The flatpak script was well thought out. Great work. I looked through it, and that was some pretty good scripting. I
1: completely agree. And GitHub Gists are fantastic for that. And you made wonderful use of them. So thanks for sharing that with us and now with everybody.
0: And that's it for what vibrations we've heard out there in the ether. Our announcements for chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Dale, where can we find you?
2: I'm Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord. My email is Dale underscore CDL at PM dot ME. Eric? I can be reached on
1: just about every social media and chat platform, except for that one that just changed its name. I I think I'm done with that one. So if you want to, you can find me on Mastodon, Discord, Telegram, Matrix, and so on under my full name, Eric Adams. And I also have an email address at eaonlinux, so e-a-o-n-l-i-n-u-x, at proton.me. Moss.
0: And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me. And I'm on Mastodon as at zyvola at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those people who make this project possible.
2: Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity,
1: which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for
0: managing the website and producing and editing the podcast.
2: Joshua Lowe for our work on our logo.
1: All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode.
0: Midair Machine creators of the song streets of Santivo. Uses our music under Creative Commons license.
2: Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU Toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source and Libre software.
1: We'll be back next month. Thank all of you for listening.